Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Karlinski, and this is Young History, episode 149 on Saudi Arabia. The capitalist country is Riyadh. Now, the name Saudi Arabia is derived from the House of Saud, which started the kingdom in its modern form. Arabia has long been the name of the peninsula where this kingdom lies. The word Arabi might literally mean inhabitant of the desert, and that's a term that comes from Old Latin. And then this connects to the Hebrew word Araba, which means desert. So Arabia is quite literally the land of the desert inhabitants. And then, of course, it's named Saudi, so it's the Saudi land of desert inhabitants. And now I'm going to give you guys some cultural and other facts before we get into the history. So Saudi Arabia is home to the two holiest cities in Islam, Mecca and Medina. Millions of Muslims from around the world visit these cities annually for the pilgrimage, which is known as the Hajj, and the lesser pilgrimage, which is the Umrah. And some traditional dress for Saudi men is the Thabe, or Dishdasha, which are long white robes. And then women typically wear an abaya, which is a black cloak, and may cover their hair with a headscarf known as a hijab. And then finally... Geographically, 95% of the land in Saudi Arabia is desert, and Saudi is the longest country in the world with no natural river within it. So, the landscape of this country, the things that have made it what it is, are super unique compared to most of the world because it's hard to live in a damn desert. But this is one of the most powerful, influential nations in the world, and we're going to get into how that happened. So, very glad you guys are here. And, one more time, I just want to say thank you for being here, and... My name is Reese Karlinski, this is Young History, and this is Saudi Arabia. Let's do this thing. The first people arrived here during the Paleolithic period, and were for sure here around 10,000 years ago. And the Arabs, which were the first major people group to form here. The Arabs are referred to as the descendants of Abraham and his son Ishmael. And then historically, we believe that the people we know as the Arabs did descend from those early Paleolithic times and just different influences from close regions like Iran and Anatolia, Turkey, all that pushed into the area and eventually formed the genetics of who we know as the Arabs today. But I am going to get a lot of historically religious context as I go through this to kind of honor the place that is the home of Islam. So we're going to do a little back and forth there. But the main focus of this is history that has actually happened. So we're going to focus on that. So eventually, the Arabs formed into a Badawin culture, which refers to nomadic pastoralism with caravan trade. The Arabs were valiant warriors no matter what point they were around. This is proven in old Assyrian art, where the Arabs are depicted in warrior scenarios with camel-riding soldiers. The earliest Arabs formed into different groups and units. One of them was the Thamud Confederation. Thamud existed from around 700 BC all the way until the 400s CE. Thamud refers to this ancient Arabic tribe that is mentioned in the Quran and is believed to have inhabited most of the Arabian Peninsula. The exact historical and archaeological details about Thamud are not extensively documented and much of the information comes from religious texts and ancient inscriptions, which means Stating it as pure truth is hard to actually do, so take everything I say with a grain of salt. Thamud is mentioned in Islamic tradition as one of the tribes that received divine messages through prophets. According to these beliefs, the prophet Saleh was sent to guide the Thamud people, who were known for their skill in carving homes out of mountains, into the area that they end up living. Thamud is associated with the region of Al-Hijr, which is Madain Saleh, which is located in present-day northwestern Saudi Arabia. 
and Made Sali is known for its archaeological remains, including carved rock tombs and structures that are now recognized as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The Quran also mentions that the Thamud people face destruction as a consequence of their disobedience, and the nature of this destruction is also usually categorized as a godly catastrophic event with earthquakes and storms, but we'll need more science to prove if that actually happened. And speaking of another very important figure to religion and the development of the world, there was Muhammad. In 1610, Muhammad was born in Mecca. While praying on Jabal al-Nur mountain, Muhammad was visited by angels that enlightened him with divine teachings. He put those teachings into writing, and the book that he wrote eventually became known as the Quran, which claims to have the direct word of God written within it. With this, the religion of Islam was born. And Islam means submission, as in full submission to God, which they, in Arabic, call Allah. Muhammad gained followers and opposition for his teachings. His opponents drove him out of Mecca, and he took his teachings to Medina in 622. Muhammad became a military commander and led his followers in the conquest of Mecca in 629. Muhammad conquered Mecca and ordered his followers to destroy all the idols present in the city. This is because the belief of Islam is that idols are not allowed because there is only one true God that cannot be easily depicted. Muhammad went on to conquer all of Arabia, including the regions of modern-day countries like UAE, Bahrain, Qatar, Yemen, and Oman. In 632, Muhammad would die and be venerated as the most important man in the history of Islam. In honor of Muhammad, the next century and a half would see Muslim military campaigns across North Africa and Central Asia to spread the teachings of Muhammad. As these Muslim leaders spread the influence across great regions, the influence of Arabia started to dwindle. Muslim centers started to pop up in Damascus and Baghdad, and Arabia returned to its ancient style of living, mostly nomadic and pastoral. In 930, a Persian warlord named Abu Tahir al-Janaibi led an invasion to Mecca to pillage the land. From Mecca, not only were many lives taken and goods stolen, but the legendary black stone of Mecca was also taken. The stone was broken into pieces and scattered into different areas, and there would be a long conquest to recapture each of these pieces, which became a major part of Arabian war campaigns. From 1076 to 1153, there was the Uyunid Emirate, the Uyunid Emirate. The Uyunid Emirate was situated in the mountainous region of Asir, which is in the southwest part of present-day Saudi Arabia. The capital of the emirate was likely the city of Najran. The Uyunid dynasty was established by Ali bin Umar bin al-Hakam. The rulers of the Uyunid Emirate were born from the Bana Uyun tribe. The region under this rule had cultural and economic significance, and it was known for its agriculture, particularly in its cultivation of dates, which have continuously grown here and across Arabia for centuries. Direct clans distributed the power of the Uyunid, and eventually the emirate was replaced by other powers. The 1200s and 1300s saw a lot of up and down of different smaller Arab tribes rising up to take power and then falling apart, but it was in 1417 that we saw the rise of the Jabrids Emirate. The Jabrids Emirate was situated in eastern region of Arabia. It covered areas that are now part of eastern Saudi Arabia and parts of Bahrain. The capital of the emirate was the city of Katif. The Jabrid dynasty was founded by Ajwad ibn Zamil, who became the first ruler of the emirate as part of the Jabrids. The Jabrids were also descendants of the Banu Abdid al-Qais tribe. During this period, the Ottoman Empire expanded its influence into the Arabian Peninsula, and the Jabrids had a complex relationship with them. Sometimes they were very close trade allies, and other times they were fully at war. This manifested more from 1516 to 1517 when the Ottoman Mamluk War was fought. The southern expanding power of the Ottomans looked unstoppable against the powerful Mamluks 
of Egypt. It was in this date in 1517 that Ottoman rule was established in Arabia when they marched from Egypt that they had just conquered across Mecca and Medina. So it is by the end of 1517 that the holiest cities of Islam are now under control of the Ottomans and eventually the whole peninsula falls as well. Ottoman governors, known as valis, were appointed to oversee specific regions. Their extended authority touched both administrative and military matters within the Arabian Peninsula. And alongside this, the fact that the Ottoman Empire was an Islamic state helped the way they governed because many of the small kingdoms and tribes of Arabians that had already formed in the areas were left to still exist so that Ottoman rule could be governed through them rather than this whole imbalance of power between the Ottomans ruling with an iron fist and cracking down on the Arabian Peninsula down on the Arabian Peninsula's inhabitants. So there was a lot of abuse that came, but the idea was that there would still be many Arabian influences in the Ottoman-controlled area. So because of this, there was a lot of continued expansion of Islamic governance in the Arabian Peninsula as the Ottomans controlled it, and the Ottoman rulers often portrayed themselves as protectors of Islam because of the fact that they ran the holiest cities of Mecca and Medina. And this is when we start to see the rise of the House of Saud, the House of Saud actually begins around 720 when Saud I, also known as Muhammad bin Saud al-Murqin, expanded the powerful family that had a lot of support because of their strict adherence to Islam. That support was actually weaponized and turned into a political unit that came out of the town of Diria. In 1727, Muhammad bin Saud led his house and army against Ottoman rule. He carved out a separate state from the Ottomans, and Saud made an agreement with a prominent theologian that sought refuge in Diria. The man was Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. The agreement was that Saud would be emir of this new province, and Wahhab would be the imam. The agreement was that Saud would be the emir, kind of the political and geographic leader, and Wahhab would be the imam or religious leader. And this would also place Saud as the highest-ranking monarch in the society. The agreement was based on Wahhabism, which was Wahhab's specific belief that pure traditional Islamic ideas were the best way to honor Muhammad, and that's how this branch of the Sunni should live. And he also believed that its home should be in the Arabian Peninsula. So, the Emirate of Diria was officially established in 1744. Ottoman efforts to challenge the Emirate culminated over decades of troubles, and this manifested in the 1811 invasion. That was the Wahhabi War. All Wahhabist theologians were ordered to be executed if they were found in Arabia by Ottoman soldiers. In 1818, the Ottomans successfully ended the war by burning the town of Diria to the ground. One of the more grotesque events in the fall of the Emirate occurred in the same year. The Emir of Diria, which was Abdul bin Saud al Saud, who was a descendant of bin Saud, who actually founded it, was taken to Constantinople for execution. And he held a close Wahhabism belief that lute music was sinful and devilish. Therefore, he never listened to music that came from the lute. When he was in Constantinople, his Ottoman executioners forced him to listen to lute music before they beheaded him, thus ending the first Saudi state. The brutality of the Saud's execution and many of the other events that happened in the war drove a wedge between the Ottomans and the Saudis that can still be presently seen today with relations between Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Nonetheless, there was still a deep determination of the Saud to become an independent state. Turkey Ibn Abdullah Ibn Muhammad was a grandson of the Saud family that managed to escape the Ottoman siege of Diria. He garnered support for a few years and established a new emirate state in 1824. This was the Emirate of Nejd. The Emirate of Nejd lasted from 1824 to 1891. 
Syria was fully crumpled, so Riyadh was selected as the capital. This marked the Nejd as the second Saudi state. The son of Turkey was Abdul Rahman, who succeeded him as emir for the emirate. The emirate was plagued with internal struggle because Muhammad bin Saud had produced so many heirs that dynastic fighting was inevitable. These divisions made it hard for the state to stay united and actually caused them to become very weak. In 1891, Rahman was defeated and forced out of Riyadh by the al-Shahid of the rival Jabal Shamar Emirate. The Jabal Shamar were in close alliances with the Ottoman Empire. The Jabal Shamar also took over Riyadh and ended the second Saudi state. Rahman was able to live and he fled with his family to the southern desert and took refuge among the Bedouins, which were one of the older nomadic Arab tribes that remained in the south. Eventually, Rahman moved his family to Kuwait, where he tried again to gain the power in Saudi. He was defeated and gave up all hopes of returning to power. From here, he moved to become a spiritual leader, so he named his son the head of the family. This marked the end of the Nejd Emirate. The son that I just mentioned was Abdulaziz, who is known in the West as Ibn Saud. More specifically, his name was Abdulaziz Ibn Abdul Rahman Ibn Fasil Al Ibn Turki Ibn Abdul Abin Muhammad Al Saud. Very much a mouthful, but if you correlate the amount of names someone has to their greatness, you would find that that reigns very true with Mr. Abdul Aziz. Abdul Aziz set out a military campaign in hopes to unite all the Arabian tribes in the peninsula. He had an army of less than 60 men because of the futile effort by his father to rally the troops. And with these 60 men, he would terrorize all the Arab tribes that sided with the Emirates in Riyadh against him. On January 15th, 1902, Abdulaziz led 40 men, including some of his cousins and other family members, into Riyadh. On this night, him and his kin scaled tilted palm trees that laid over the walls of Riyadh. Abdulaziz and his men attacked so quickly that by the time the governor was able to alert other guards, almost all of them were dead. The governor of Riyadh was executed by Abdulaziz alongside the rest of his soldiers. Abdulaziz reestablished the Saudi as the leaders of Riyadh. Abdulaziz established the Saudi Arab state, he reestablished the Emirate of Nejd, and continued to push on from there. He then formed an alliance with the Ekwatan, which was a strong band of Bedouin nomads who adhered to Wahhabism, except instead, of choosing, except instead of choosing the very peaceful way to adhere to Wahhabism, they were ready to live by the sword for their belief. In no time, the entire Nest Desert fell under the rule of the Saudi-Bedouin alliance. And after turning blood enemies into allies under the Saud family, the Arab Revolt began. The Arab Revolt lasted from 1916 to 1918. This massive revolt united efforts against the weakening Ottoman Empire to gain independence. This strong resistance actually gained the attention of Britain and France, who both sought to back the Saudis against their common enemy. An alliance was made specifically with Britain to battle against the power of the Ottoman Empire during World War I. And it would be during the battles of World War I that Arabia saw its most legendary figure, Lawrence of Arabia. And it would be during these battles in World War I that the most legendary war story and war hero from this region popped up. That would be Lawrence of Arabia. L.E. Lawrence, who we know as Lawrence of Arabia, was a British archaeologist, army officer, and diplomat. The main thing he did was lead battlefield expeditions and dangerous missions behind Ottoman lines during the two-year Arab revolt against the Turks. He was extremely significant in the strategy that the Arabs used to revolt against the Ottoman Empire. The reason that so many victories occurred, of course, was support from the British and the extreme amounts of experience from the Saudi fighting before, but the tactics and 
plans used by Lawrence of Arabia are a huge reason the much more powerful Ottomans were able to taste so many defeats. So he is recognized as one of the more significant figures in the history of Saudi Arabia because he helped them against their greatest foe. Abdulaziz actually ended up using the alliance with the British to subjugate any Arabian tribes that stood on the side of the Ottomans. By the end of World War I, Abdulaziz held power in the most of the peninsula and wanted to expand it to Islam's holiest cities because those still had a lot of Ottoman influence. This was aided heavily by the British, who sent unreasonable amounts of guns and ammunition to the Abdulaziz forces. This was mainly for the strong effort they contributed in defeating the Ottoman Empire in World War I, so now the British saw them as an ally above everything else. And now that the Ottoman Empire had fallen, it left the holy cities very, very vulnerable. In 1925, Abdulaziz invaded Mecca with his full force. He ousted the last Ottoman Hashemite ruler, thus ending 700 years of Ottoman control of Islam's holiest city. In 1927, the Ikhwan Revolt broke out when Ikhwan Wahhabists lashed out against the Saudi rule, which they believed was corrupted by the wealth and Western influence that had crept its way into the area. Two years of brutal fighting between the House of Saud and the Ikhwan resulted in the end of the rebellion in brutal fashion. Leaders of the rebellion were executed while many others were tortured in exile. And this sets a precedent that we see throughout the rest of Saudi's history, where People that adhere heavily to very, very conservative traditional styles of Islam that want to encourage its people to stay away from Western influence, their technologies, their money, all sorts of things like that, and their presence in the peninsula end up facing a lot of issues with the monarchy of Saudi Arabia because of the fact that they are much more liberal. They are much more open to change. They are pushing forward many changes, as we're going to see as we go through the rest of this, but this leads to some other major internal conflicts that Saudi has. And then we get back into these and then we get back into this revolt that happened. So after suppressing the revolt, the power of the Saud continued to grow. Specifically, in 1932, Abdul Aziz and the House of Saud united the kingdoms of Nejd and the Western Hejaz region to form one kingdom. This was the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The kingdom was established as an absolute monarchy that followed the teachings of Wahhabism. Abdulaziz married one daughter of each of the smaller kingdoms within Saudi Arabia. There were 20 different wives who had a total of 45 sons and a grand total of over 100 children. Six of those sons have since gone on to rule the kingdom. The early days of the kingdom were actually not very easy for Saudi citizens. The lack of natural resources and landmarks made the region struggle financially. However, a discovery was made that changed the destiny for not only Saudi Arabia, but for the world. Abdulaziz always figured that if Iran and Iraq had oil deposits, so did his kingdom. However, both oil reserves in those nations were discovered by the British, who Aziz did not trust. So he made deals with the United States to send oil companies out, and in no time, there was success. Oil discovery occurred in 1938 near the coast with Qatar. The California Standard Oil Company discovered the first oil veins, and thus ties between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. were sealed. The oil reserves found here combined to be more than both North and South America. By 1948, hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil were extracted every single day. During World War II, Abdulaziz kept the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia neutral, despite having most of his sentiments lean towards support for the Allies. Nonetheless, he still met with Winston Churchill and FDR to establish strong ties and trade deals. Abdulaziz would continue to use oil wealth to rapidly modernize the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. He would do this until his very death. Abdulaziz eventually died in 1953 and was succeeded by his eldest living son, Saud of Saudi Arabia.
In the West, Ibn Saud was recognized as one of the most influential leaders in the world that was not in the United States or Europe. Saud of Saudi Arabia reigned as king from 1953 to 1964. Under the leadership of Saud, the nation of Saudis finally outlawed slavery and fully abolished the practice in 1962. Saud was an extremely well-liked leader for his kindness and charitable personality, but this made him seem weak in the eyes of his enemies. One of his enemies was the socialist leader of Egypt, Abdul Nasser, who claimed that the Saudi oil did not belong just to them, but to everyone in the Arab world. Saud of Saudi Arabia was very weak in the way he handled Abdul Nasser, which caused many of his loyalists to turn against him. The country itself faced economic struggle, which actually led to the downfall of Saud. Faisal, a blood brother of King Saud, eventually ousted him from power in a coup d'etat. Faisal was supported by the Wahhabist religious community and forced his brother to abdicate the throne. Saud was exiled, and he actually traveled across the Middle East and eventually spent time in Egypt. He would spend the twilight of his life using his close relationship with Abdul Nasser to spread propaganda against his brother Faisal. King Faisal attempted to be more moderate compared to his older brothers. He expanded the education tax and welfare systems of the country. He also heavily confirmed the abolishment of slavery and expanded punishments for anyone who delved into its practice. He initiated the use of television networks nationwide and used them to spread Islam and the word of the Saudi royal family. In 1966, one of Faisal's distant nephews actually led a resistance against him. This nephew protested the way that Faisal used these stations to propagate his politics. For his resistance against Faisal and the family, this nephew was actually shot dead by Saudi police. Faisal made strong moves against Soviet countries and their allies because he assumed that Sovietism was linked with Zionism, which he opposed more heavy than anything else. Faisal also used the expanding Saudi economy to fund military expeditions in a proxy war against Abdul Nasser in Yemen. This was when the early Yemen civil war broke out, and this went on until 1967 when tensions started to de-escalate. To keep strong relations with the United States, while still standing stoutly against Israel, Faisal moved to continue for more peace and more negotiation rather than outright warfare. Nonetheless, tensions started to rise when Faisal placed an oil embargo on any nation that supported Israel in the Yom Kippur War. The embargoes placed by Faisal caused oil prices to shoot through the roof because the world's main provider had pulled itself from most markets. This was directly the cause of the 1973 oil crisis. The crisis was directly caused by the fact that many Western nations assisted Israel and were subsequently denied oil by the Saudis. This caused a huge rise in the global price for oil and caused inflation across most nations. The end of Faisal's reign came due more to family politics than anything else. In 1975, his nephew, Faisal bin Mosaid, who had just returned from the United States, shot him point-blank to assassinate him. Faisal bin Mossad was the closest brother to the Saud family member, the nephew, who was killed because of the television protests earlier in Faisal's rule. Faisal bin Mossad was tried and executed by the highest religious court in all of Saudi Arabia. And specifically, he was beheaded publicly for thousands of you on the charge of regicide. Khalid bin Abdulaziz al-Saud was the eldest brother to the former monarch and was named the next king of Saudi Arabia. He spent most of his reign connecting Saudis to the U.S., he also oversaw the first purchase of F-15 fighter jets from the United States. But the most significant thing that happened during his rule was a major terrorist insurrection that attempted to end the monarchy. The Grand Mosque seizure was a 1979 militant invasion. A gang of armed militia members stormed the Grand Mosque in Mecca. The militant forces held the Grand Mosque hostage to protest the rule of the Saud family. A two-week-long shootout occurred between the military forces 
and the mosque occupants. Eventually, the militia surrendered and every single person was beheaded publicly. And this highlighted another internal resistance against the way that the Saudis were running the nation because these are more traditional conservative Muslims who adhered to Wahhabism and believed that any connection with the West was breaking things stated by Muhammad. Eventually, after handling this, Khalid started to see a decline in his health and was succeeded by his brother, Fad Abdulaziz. He ruled the nation from 1982 to 2005. King Fad was committed to modernizing Saudi and diversifying its economy. Under his rule, the country experienced significant economic development, including the expansion of infrastructure, industrial projects, and educational institutions. And a big thing with this was that Faisal eventually put Saudi oil back into the market, but because the demand had shot up so much, the price for oil shot through the roof, and the wealth that came into the Saudi monarchy, it was just ridiculous. So the country got richer and richer and richer. And then bouncing back to Faud, his reign saw the implementation of a series of five-year developmental plans aimed at transforming various sectors. One of the major challenges during Fahd's reign was the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990, which brewed into the Gulf War. In the Gulf War, the Saudi government backed the United States against Iraq, and this led to a lot of internal strife because of Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden was part of an Afghani armed resistance group against the Soviets, and eventually found himself in Saudi Arabia. Bin Laden gained a position of influence over a band of battle-hardened Afghani. When Iraq capitulated, it gave fear to Saudi, who wanted to secure its borders. Instead of employing bin Laden and his men, who implored the government to do so, the United States got the job, and hundreds of thousands of men were brought into Saudi Arabia to defend its borders. This enraged bin Laden, who formed resistance groups against Saudi's king, who he called a heretic. Battles between Saudi Arabia and bin Laden and his Al-Qaeda-esque tribes still go on to this day, even though that guy got a bullet in the head in 2011. However, in the 2003 invasions of Iraq, the Saudi did not show support for the United States in their war that they waged across the Middle East for 9-11. This represented a long-standing distaste for relations with the United States among many Saudi citizens. Because I'm going to give you something else that highlights the issue, which is the fact that most of the people involved in 9-11 were actually of Saudi descent from Saudi Arabia, not Iraq at all, not even Pakistan. It was mostly people from Saudi Arabia. And then, bouncing back to King Fahd himself, he maintained Saudi Arabia's commitment to conservative Islamic principles while implementing modernization efforts. He supported the establishment of institutions to promote Islamic education and culture. He also emphasized the importance of Islamic values in the country. In the later years of his rule, King Fahd faced health issues, leading to a period of regency during which Crown Prince Abdullah bin Abdulaziz effectively governed the country in 2005. Upon King Fahd's death, Crown Prince Abdullah officially became the king. The 2000s were most heavily characterized by the fact that Saudi Arabia advanced in many ways at a very rapid pace. Abdullah bin Abdulaziz ruled from 2005 to 2015. Abdullah initiated a series of socioeconomic and administrative reforms aimed at modernizing Saudi Arabia. These were mainly focused on expanding education, healthcare, and infrastructure. He also introduced economic policies to diversify the country's oil-dependent economy. One of the notable initiatives during Abdullah's reign was the King Abdullah Scholarship Program, which aimed to send Saudi students abroad for higher education. This program hoped to address the need for skilled professionals in various fields and enhance the country's intellectual cap space. King Abdullah advocated for interfaith dialogue and initiated efforts to improve relations between different regions and religions within the community. In 2008, he hosted an interfaith conference in Madrid, Spain, which showed once again a move for the Saudi monarchy towards more liberal ideas and changes from the traditional Wahhabism that it was originally founded on. 
While King Abdullah implemented some reforms, the pace of political change in Saudi Arabia remained slow. He introduced municipal elections in 2005, which allowed Saudi citizens to vote for local municipal councils. However, these elections had limited powers, and broader political participation remained restricted. King Abdullah served as the commander of the Saudi Arabian National Guard for many years before he became king. Under his rule, the National Guard was subsequently funded and expanded to the strongest it had ever been, with hopes to defend the country from any threat that came. King Abdullah took steps to improve women's rights in Saudi Arabia. He appointed the first female minister, Nora al Thais, and introduced limited reforms allowing women to participate in municipal elections and be appointed to the Shura Council, which is one of the lawmaking branches of the lower Saudi government. And then the Arab Spring occurred in 2011. During the Arab Spring, Saudi Arabia saw protests in the eastern province. King Abdullah responded by announcing economic and social reforms with hopes to increase public spending to end up lowering unemployment. Abdullah remained in power until he was 90 years old, and when he passed, his half-brother inherited the throne in 2015. Salman was named the next king of the nation. His brother was around 90 when he died, and Salman was not far behind, already in his 80s upon his ascension to the throne. So he ruled from 2015 and still rules to this very day. But the reason the throne had passed so much was because of the fact that so many people were dying in the Saudi family. So many people that were direct sons of Abdulaziz. And outside of the fact that so many brothers were dying, many other family members were dying in general. Sons were dying, people were passing away from disease and age and all sorts of things. So Salman was very aware of the fact that he is coming towards the end of his life. So he decided to pick his heir early. And he did this the same year he ascended. Instead of picking one of his equally elderly brothers, he decided to name his son the Crown Prince, which means that he will be next in line to inherit the throne. The Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia is Muhammad bin Salman, who is widely known as MBS. As the next heir, he would be the first of Abdulaziz's grandchildren to run the nation if he gains power. And he is currently the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia in the absence of his father's ability to rule. 2015 was also a very monumental year outside of the Saudi family. Internally, the country granted women the right to vote for the very first time ever. Internationally, the Saudi military got involved in Yemen to battle the Houthis. Throughout 2015 and in every year since, Saudi Arabia has launched many carbon bombing campaigns against the North Yemeni Houthi. In 2018, Saudi lifted the ban on female drivers, so women were legally allowed to drive for the first time in history. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, as he is quickly known, is a very unique leader of the Saudi nation. MBS is in his 30s, which make him one of the youngest rulers of the Saudi Kingdom's history. Due to his youth, MBS brings a lot of millennial ideals and connection to the country. He is very well connected to the modern happenings of the world and the way that different alliances have shifted. He has attempted to maintain close ties with the United States, but still stands on any of his own decisions with full passion. MBS opposes Israel, opposes Iran, and still upholds the campaigns against the Houthi in Yemen. However, MBS is a very controversial figure. MBS was the king in power for many of the groundbreaking changes that came to Saudi, such as the expansion of rights to women. MBS has also helped Saudi gain more attention in the international market for things outside of oil. The Al Nasser Football Club recruited Cristiano Ronaldo, who is the most famous athlete in the world. On top of this, Neymar Jr., another one of the most famous soccer players in the world, was signed to a Saudi club called Al Halal, and part of his incentive is that if he posts about Saudi and promotes Saudi Arabia, he gets more and more money. MBS has also been very approving of the expansion of WWE slash the World Wrestling Entertainment Company into Saudi Arabia, who hosts massive yearly events in Riyadh. On the other hand, MBS is widely marked for his abuse of human rights when it comes to Yemen. There have been cases where Yemeni journalists have been killed by the order of the Crown Prince. 
Dissent within the country of Saudi Arabia is also heavily suppressed. MBS has expanded the rights of the nation to women, but any women that have crawled out for more rights have been arrested and sometimes executed. MBS also continued the absolute monarchical power of House of Saud and has honestly expanded it. There are no politicians with real power, and no one challenges the Saudi family at the national level. There are also widespread reports about journalists being abused and the labor system in Saudi treating for workers. There are also widespread reports about journalists being abused and the labor system in Saudi Arabia treating workers like they are nothing more than tools. And this also rolls into another issue right now, which is actually the 2024 coalition efforts. Now, I covered all this a lot more, at least the history of it, a lot more in my last episode on Yemen. But the coalition between the UK, Saudi Arabia, and the United States was formed about a decade ago to challenge the efforts of the Houthi in North Yemen. The Houthi are a powerful family that represents a minority group in North Yemen who have started a civil war against the Yemen government. The Houthis stand very strong on anti-American, anti-Jew, and anti-Western ideals. So both Saudi Arabia and the Western nations have deemed them as a threat because not only are they claiming all these things, but Saudi has always alleged that the Houthi are being funded by Iran, who is their biggest opponent in the world. Because Iran is a big, huge, powerful Shia Muslim country. Of course, Saudi is the home of all Sunni, is the cornerstone of not only that belief, but that is a geographic home for the people. And clashes between them go back and forth, and it all comes back to the things I said before, which is Saudi has been this country willing to negotiate with the United States, with the UK, sell goods there, let those people come in and visit, let Europeans come in, let Americans come in, all sorts of things like that. And then in traditional belief, which is what the Shiite Muslims believe in North Yemen, in Iran, in countries of that sort, they believe this is blasphemous, they believe it is horrible, and they believe that it should be stopped by any means necessary. So this is the whole reason they clash over and over and over again. There's proxy wars in Syria and Yemen, all sorts of things like that. They're all funded by Saudi on one side and Iran on the other side. The reason I bring this up is as of January 2024, the war between Hamas and Israel is very present. The Houthi in North Yemen started to attack different ship vessels from the United States and other Israeli allied nations. They launched these attacks from the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, which is in the southwestern part of Yemen, that accounts for 15% of the world's shipping and a huge percentage of oil shipping in the world. For this action, the Houthis are now facing widespread bombardment from a coalition of American, European forces that are backed individually by countries like Canada, the Netherlands, and Bahrain. Now, the sad part about this is that the people of Yemen will be heavily affected by this and could have their lives ended for no reason. The horrors of war have played out in Yemen over and over for over a decade now, and countries like the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are most definitely responsible for it. However, do not take this as some weird support for the Houthis. The Houthi slogan is literally, death to America, death to Israel, curse the Jews, and victory to Islam. Do not be confused by the social media posts and the people that cry, why are we attacking the Houthis? All they did was support Palestine. The Houthis represent one of the most conservative branches of Shiite Islam in the world, the Zaydis. They are the entire reason the Yemen civil war is happening. They are the reason the deadly blockade is happening, and they are the reason thousands to millions of deaths occur, on top of all the different fleeing and misplacement that has occurred in Yemen as well. Negotiations have been attempted with Houthi forces from both Saudi and the UN, but no peace has prevailed because of their own selfish greed. Now, this doesn't undermine the fact that there is greed from the Saudis, there's greed from the U.S., there's abuse on both sides. But just 
do not think that some poor, innocent little tribe is being affected by these giant nations and being abused because that's far from the truth. The Houthi are a well-funded, well-armed terrorist organization that has killed thousands of innocent people and is the reason that people are dying in Yemen. So keep that in mind. And with all that being said, that gets us to the present, where Saudi faces hundreds of accusations of human rights abuses and, of course, faces a lot of criticism for its absolute monarchy-style government. However, it does have the largest economy in the Middle East and is one of the most developed nations in the world. MBS reigns over the country with full unadulterated power, and for this, he faces lots of criticism at the international level. MBS's actions in Yemen have seen many sources mark him as a brutal dictator, but he still does have a lot of support from the conservative population in Saudi Arabia. The country itself is a stunning nation, with a vast terrain and a people that have endured a very long history. The politics of the government make it a very hard country to understand, but there's no denying how important this nation is to the world today and how important it has been throughout its entire history. And with that, that gets us to the very end, where at the end of these episodes, I always like to do a takeaway or a mindset. And with Saudi Arabia, that's going to be stick to what you do best. This isn't some weird insult at Saudi, but let's be honest. They are the most prolific, high-achieving, efficient oil country in the world. They know how to get their oil, they know how to manage it, they know how to put it down, and they know how to use it to make them one of the richest countries in the world. They've had different niches, they've had dates, they had caravan trade, they had a lot of different things throughout their history, but they have found their place. They know exactly what they're good at, and they know they can leverage it to literally have influence in the entire world. That is something you can do as well. We all have some gift. We all have some great physical strength, mental strength, emotional strength, some skill that other people don't have. And if you use it right, you can have that deep level of influence, not only in your life, but in others. You can change the place you live. You can change your life. You can change your partner. If you find what you're great at, your niche, and just stick to it, don't listen to anyone else. If you find that thing you're great at and you love it, people are going to try and shy you away. People are going to try and push you off that path but it is not going to be worth it. The only thing that's going to be worth it is sticking to it, and that's what you need to do because Saudi has found their niche, and you need to find yours. So with all that, I say that's what you should do, and that's what this history has taught us is find that thing you are fantastic at, that you're the best at, and just do it until nobody can deny that you're the person you should be. And that's going to be where I sign off. This was a fantastic episode. Saudi is so interesting. And of course, there's a lot of things to criticize this nation for today. I'm not about to wave the Saudi flag in the air and act like I love this country because I do not. I only love one country and that is my own. Um, but when it comes to history and it comes to culture and it comes to influence and all the things that have made this country what it is, this is absolutely an incredibly unique country. It is very special. It's done so many things to change the world. It's very much shaping the world right now. And it's just very interesting. So no matter what you feel about the country, it's always great to know the history of why people are the way they are in a nation, why a nation is the way it is. It's the whole reason I did this podcast, and it's always nice to get a really good reminder of why you do what you do. So thank you for that, Saudi. But with that being said, I'm going to sign off. I really hope you guys enjoyed. I really hope you guys got something out of this like I did. And either way, thank you for being here. So with all that being said, I'm just going to sign off and say, my name is Rhys Garlinski. This is Young History. And that was Saudi Arabia. You guys have a good one.